Many people throughout history have suffered from a lust for fame. Rejecting God, they see the futility of life and they desire to be remembered beyond their days. But being insignificant, they know the only way they'll be remembered is if they do something terrible. Something like this happened one year ago, March 2015. You may remember the crash of German Wings Flight 9525 in the French Alps. Copat's name was Andreas Lubitz. He's a young man. He struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts. He learned he felt he was going blind to make matters worse. So he resolved to leave this world, sadly, via suicide. But he wanted to go out with a bang and be remembered. He told his girlfriend before, quote, one day I will do something that will change the whole system and then all will know my name and remember it, end quote. On the morning of March 24th, 2015, He reported to work like normal. Flight took off from Spain to Germany like normal. He acted normal. But then when the main pilot went up to get a bathroom break, he came back and he found the cockpit was locked. He had locked him out. And then suddenly the plane began descending. This co-pilot Lubitz, he was taking the plane down on purpose. Of course, the pilot tried to reason with him, and then he tried to break down the door. But we know after 9-11, you can't break down a cockpit door anymore. All the while, Lubitz didn't say a word, and shortly thereafter, the plane crashed into a mountain, traveling at 430 miles an hour, obviously killing everyone on board. And sadly, this event was such a tragedy, he'll get what he wanted. He will get his name remembered for quite some time. It's unavoidable. cannot be helped. And many others throughout history have sought to be remembered the same way, through infamy, And the greater the crime, well, the greater chance you'll be remembered, the longer you'll be remembered. Well, there's one other man in particular who went down in history, unlike any other, for his role in the worst crime ever. This man participated in the greatest injustice in human history, and he's been singled out for it in the worst of ways. Ironically, he didn't want to be remembered for this deed, though, but nonetheless, here we are. We're still talking about him 2,000 years later. His name is Pontius Pilate. All of you immediately know who he is. Most people do. Our country has become so biblically illiterate that names like David, Moses, Abraham mean nothing to most people. But everyone still seems to know the name Pontius Pilate. And if you ask them who killed Jesus, most people will tell you Pontius Pilate. Would it surprise you to learn that the Bible and Jesus himself place the blame, humanly speaking, for his death much more on the shoulders of the Jews, the religious leaders of Israel at the time. By no means am I suggesting that Pilate is innocent. His sin was huge indeed, but the only person innocent in the death of Jesus was Jesus. But do you really know what what role Pilate played? Do you know why his name has gone down in history as the man who has become, so to speak, responsible for the death of Christ. What did he really do? Well, today we're going to start to find out. Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Here we are. We're getting pretty close. We're finally into Mark 15. This is a long chapter, but nonetheless, we're still very close now to the end of Mark's gospel account. Everything we've learned all throughout this, this whole gospel accumulates here. It climaxes here. This is the chapter of the cross. But we're not there quite yet. 
We've seen the arrest of Jesus, his Jewish trial in the middle of the night. Now, as chapter 15 begins, we see the beginning of his Roman trial, which will end in his death. The Jews hand Jesus over to Pilate, and so now we're finally introduced to this infamous character. Now, although the Romans have no axe to grind with Jesus like the Jews did, still we'll find he'll receive no fair treatment. Though not as culpable as the religious leaders of Israel, the Romans and Pilate, they still bear their fair share of guilt for the harm and the injustice they perpetrated on the sinless Son of God. A man they fully knew to be innocent. Meanwhile, Jesus continues to suffer in silence, awaiting the hour for which he came, the hour of the cross. All of this and more is to come in this chapter of Mark 15 as we go through it over many weeks to come. But today, though, I want to more fully set the scene for you of this Roman trial, the Roman phase of Christ's trial. And technically, we're only going to cover the first five verses, but we'll be adding lots of details in from the other Gospels as well to give you a better appreciation and understanding of everything Christ went through in the the moments leading up to that death on the cross. Soon we will get to the event of the cross itself, but there's still a world of lessons for us to learn just by how Jesus handled himself, carried himself through all of his mistreatment in the moments leading up to the cross. And that's what we want to behold today. So to get things started, turn your attention to Mark 15. Look at verse 1. We'll start with this. If you want to outline, follow along. Number one, Jesus before the Jews. Start off with Jesus before the Jews. Look at verse 1. It says, Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Verse 1 serves as our transition from the Jewish phase of Christ's trial now to the Roman phase. Earlier that morning, between 1 to 3 a.m., Jesus stood before Annas, the former high priest. That was part one of the Jewish trial. Then he stood before Caiaphas, the present high priest, and the whole Sanhedrin. It's like their Supreme Court. That was part two to his Jewish trial. And together they labored to find some ground with which to charge Jesus, to accuse him of something worthy of death. They couldn't find anything because he was sinless and guiltless. But Jesus eventually gave them what they were looking for on purpose. He told them that he was indeed the Christ and the Son of God. Instead of believing and worshiping him, they, with hardened hearts, accused him of blasphemy, worthy of death. Jesus was then taken back outside, beaten and bloodied. When they finally grew tired, he was taken to a holding cell where he awaited daybreak, at which point they would reconvene to just formally sentence him, ship him off to the Romans. That's what's going on in verse 1. We're picking things up now at daybreak. As we studied several weeks ago, altogether, this was the biggest sham trial ever of Jesus before the Jews. They violated their own laws, God's laws, and how they tried Jesus. Jesus shouldn't have been tried at night. He shouldn't have been tried in the home of the high priest. He shouldn't have been tried in this close proximity to Passover. But they didn't care. They wanted him put away, ASAP, away from the public eye. In addition, whenever the Sanhedrin found a man guilty of a capital crime worthy of death, they were supposed to wait a full 24 hours, a whole day, reconvene to reaffirm their judgment, just to make sure they're not 
sentencing someone to death too rashly. But with Jesus, they wait about two hours. The first crack of dawn, they reassemble to find him worthy of death. About 5.30 in the morning, that's when sunrise would have been that time of year, that part of the world. This time the Sanhedrin assembles. Everyone is present. They hastily reconfirm their conviction of Jesus and the sentence of death. It probably was their quickest meeting ever. All of this was just for the sake of appearance. They needed to maintain some veneer of legality. Granted, they've already fudged their own system enough, but they need to keep up some appearances. They need to formally meet during daylight to, again, convict him, sentence him, make it all seem above board. They got together, they got their story straight, and then off to the Romans, Jesus went. Now, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Why exactly are they sending Jesus to the Romans? Why not just kill him themselves? Well, the answer is because they needed the Romans to carry out the death penalty. According to Jewish law, blasphemy carried the death penalty via stoning. You'd be stoned to death. But the Jews were living under Roman rule, and they did not allow the Jews to carry out the death penalty. Such cases had to be brought before the Romans. And if the Romans found someone truly worthy of death, he would die the Roman way for a criminal, and that is crucifixion. Now, you should know, the Romans, they didn't really care about the petty affairs of the Jews and their religious laws. They just wanted from the Jews taxes and peace. That's it. So they they let the Jews get away with taking the law into their own hands from time to time. That's why we see, for example, the Sanhedrin, they get away with stoning Stephen to death. And they almost get away with stoning the woman caught in adultery to death, but Jesus intervenes there. It's doubtful the Romans even knew about those cases of capital punishment. But that definitely wouldn't fly with Jesus. He's way too high profile of a figure. I mean, we're talking crime of the century material here. I'm sure the Sanhedrin members were foaming at the mouth with the opportunity to be the ones to stone Jesus to death, but they knew that they couldn't get away with it. Not in the eyes of the public, not in the eyes of the Romans, especially during Passover. It would cause a riot among the people. There would be repercussions among the Romans. They had to do this through the Romans. But, you know, actually it served them better to let the Romans do the dirty work of actually killing Jesus. Why? They knew that killing Jesus, it's probably going to upset a good number of Jews. And if things turn south, then they could always just blame the Romans, pin the whole thing on the Romans, what they eventually did. So they were actually, they were happy. They were resolved to have the Romans involved. All the while, though, unbeknownst to them, they were playing right into the hands of God. This was all God's plan for the Messiah, the suffering servant, to die for the people, by the people, not via stoning, but via crucifixion. That was the plan. This fact escaped their notice, being blind to the scriptures, but the Old Testament actually gives several indications that the Messiah was to die that way, by being lifted up, by being pierced through for our transgressions. Jesus himself explicitly told the disciples that when he got to Jerusalem, he would be convicted by the religious leaders, but then handed over to the Gentiles, and they would not stone him, but crucify him. This is part of the plan. Jesus knows it. He's predicted it. 
All this goes to say, everything that happened to Jesus, although tragic and evil, was according to God's plan. This was the plan for Jesus to be convicted by the Jews and then executed by the Romans. That doesn't relieve these wicked men of their guilt. No, but it does show God's sovereign ability to work out his divine will through wicked men. God is able to, like Genesis 50:20 says, take what men mean for evil and use it for good. And here with the cross, Jesus or God takes the greatest evil and uses it for the greatest good. Jesus knew this must take place, which is why he went along with it. So as they bound him yet again to deliver him to Pilate, doesn't argue, doesn't put up a fight, doesn't call down 12 legions of angels, doesn't say anything. Off he goes, because he knows this is the plan to redeem mankind. And so this brings us to number two, Jesus before Pilate. Jesus before the Jews. Secondly, Jesus before Pilate. As the text continues, it really marks the end of the Jewish phase of Christ's trial and the beginning of that Roman phase. And here we get our first glimpse at that infamous character, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the longest reigning governor of Judea, a whole 11 years from A.D. 26 to 37. Ancient sources describe Pilate as being inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. It's almost like he enjoyed provoking the Jews. On one occasion, he led the legions of Rome into the temple with banners that glorified Caesar, and he knew that would be deeply offensive and blasphemous to the Jews, but he didn't really care. Pilate normally lived in Caesarea, on the Mediterranean coast. Sounds nice. But from time to time, on special occasion, he would reside in Jerusalem, like during Passover, to keep the peace. Passover is known to be the most volatile time in the region among the Jews, so he kept an eye on the city during that time. The last thing he wanted was an outbreak during the festival. We'll see that later. So with this in mind, the Jews hand Jesus over to Pilate. He's the guy who would handle these capital cases. The location for these Roman proceedings was, according to John, a place called the Praetorium. The Praetorium. And that word just means the headquarters of the governor, so it doesn't tell us exactly where it is. It could have been at Herod's palace in Jerusalem, where Jesus was tried, but Herod was also in town, so more likely Pilate was residing in a place called the Antonia Fortress. That was right outside the temple. They built it like next to the temple, a Roman fortress. Four really high towers overlooked the whole city, overlooked the temple. That's where all the Roman soldiers lived, the guys who arrested Jesus. And most likely, that's where Pilate is, and that's where they're bringing Jesus to Pilate now. Now, according to John 18, when when the Jews arrived at the praetorium, they, they hand Jesus over, but they refuse to go inside. Why? It says... They didn't want to be defiled so that they could still eat Passover that night. Just think about that. You are meant to observe and catch that just pathetic irony there. Here are these supposedly righteous religious Jews, so diligent to keep these laws and ceremonies and traditions so that they wouldn't be defiled. Got to observe Passover. Yet their hearts were so filled with hatred and, and wickedness. They, they had no problem defiling themselves by murdering the sinless Son of God, the Passover lamb. 
that very moment, on the eve of Passover, mind you, like Jesus said of them, outwardly they appear righteous before men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's proving them right then and there. And to drive their hypocrisy home, get this, when the Jews delivered Jesus over to Pilate, they have to present charges, like here's why we're bringing him. What would you expect them to say? We would expect, based on what we've learned, hey, Pilate, this man we've found guilty of blasphemy, and so he deserves death. So that's what they convicted him of. That's what we would expect. But they know that's not going to fly with Pilate. He doesn't care about the religious laws. So when they get before Pilate, they change their story. Just listen to Luke 23, the parallel, verses 1 through 2. It says that the whole body of them got up and brought Jesus before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Wait, where'd that come from? They're singing a whole new tune now. The charge of blasphemy is gone. Now they present three very political charges against Jesus before Pilate. Jesus, he's misleading our nation. He's forbidding paying taxes to Caesar, and he's claiming he's a king. In contrast to Caesar, he's a king. Do you see what's going on here? The Jews know that if they just say Jesus is a blasphemer, Pilate, he won't care. He doesn't care about their religious laws. It's happened before. He'll just release Jesus. But if they make Jesus out to be a political threat, a threat to Rome, they'll listen. It's like today. You don't you don't play around pretending to be a terrorist on an airplane. And back then, you don't play around pretending to be an insurrectionist before the Romans. They take that very seriously, and they deal swiftly and harshly with potential rebels against Roman rule. Now, we know this can be further from the truth for Jesus. He didn't lead anyone astray. He told people to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, this is, ironically, this is why they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Precisely because he didn't come to oppose and overthrow Roman rule. And Jesus was a king. That's true. The word Christ can be associated with that future messianic king. Christos means anointed one. It goes back to David being anointed as king. So they were looking for the Messiah to reign and to rule over the world, over the Romans. But Jesus came and and he was far more adversarial against the Jewish leaders, not the Roman leaders. And so they figured he can't be our Christ King, our Messiah that we're looking for. So they rejected him. But still, since Jesus claimed to be the Christ, they were happy to use that fact against him and warp it. They knew he didn't claim to be a political king right then and there. But they're happy to warp that fact before Pilate. And that's how the, the charge of blasphemy was translated into a charge of treason, which to the Romans, that's their unpardonable sin. Anyone claiming to be king would be a serious offense to the Roman overlords. Such a claim has to be taken seriously. We can tell this was their main claim because now look at, look at Pilate's question to Jesus, a question that's captured in all four Gospels. Look at verse 2 of Mark 15. It says, Pilate questioned him, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? That's his question. That's what they've been accusing. That's why he asks, are you the king of the Jews? 
And he answered him, it is as you say. Literally, Jesus says, you said it. He's affirming the question, but Jesus himself is letting on that what he means by king of the Jews and what they mean are two different things. Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. They're Christ, their deliverer, their savior. And he's also, look, king of kings and lord of lords. And he will one day reign and rule on the earth. But concerning his first coming, he came to conquer sin, not Rome. Now, at this point, Mark doesn't tell us anything more. He keeps it brief. But John's gospel actually gives us more of the dialogue between Pilate and Jesus at this very moment. So I'll read that for you. You don't have to turn, but listen to John 18, verse 36. Jesus explains what he means by being the king of the Jews. John 18, 36, Jesus answered. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He's saying, look, if Jesus wanted to take over Rome and rule the earth right then and there, he would have. That's what he wanted to do. He would have. This is not Jesus denying the fact that he will come again to reign and rule on this world. Rather, he's testifying before Pilate. Look, he's come the first time. He's there right then to establish a spiritual kingdom, to conquer sin that God would reign in the hearts of his people. Pilate responds in John 18, 37. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him famously, what is truth? What is truth? Again, Jesus confesses he is a king. But his mission first time around is not to conquer Rome, but to conquer sin and death. He came revealing the truth, the truth of God, the truth of salvation, the truth of the gospel, which is all bound up in him personally. Pilate was no truth lover. Pilate's like the first postmodern. What is truth? Who, Who cares about truth? But at the very least, though, Pilate could already tell that Jesus was no political threat. So John 18.38 says, When he had said this, Pilate went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate could tell there's no real substance to the charges brought by these Jews. It's not true. But the Jews, of course, they're not going to give up. So they resort to a very ancient tactic and debate When things aren't going your way, what do you do? What should you do? Just get louder. Many spouses today employ that technique. When you're losing an argument, just get louder. And so look at Mark 15, verse 3. This picks it up back now and says, The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. They're outraged that Pilate wouldn't find any guilt in him. So they started speaking up. They're yelling. They're causing a commotion, a a little riot right then and there. Literally, it says they accused Jesus of many things. They're just hurling more and more flaming arrows of accusation against Jesus. Verse 4, then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they're bringing against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. 
Not long ago, American student Otto Warmbier, he was accused of theft while traveling to North Korea. Now, first off, don't go to North Korea. Why are you traveling in North Korea? But he got arrested, and I watched this video of him standing before the Korean judges and authorities, and he was, he was doomed. They were going to convict him to 15 years in a labor camp there. He had no hope. And so he is bawling his eyes out. He's crying. He's pleading. He's begging for mercy. He's saying anything he can just to try and get out of it. And that's, that's what we would expect. That's the reaction we would expect of someone who's been caught trying to clear themselves, clear their name, especially if you're truly innocent like Jesus. I mean, you should be yelling, screaming, saying anything to, to defend yourself against these false accusations. But Jesus just stands there totally silent. Pilate can't help be amazed. First, he sees the contrast between Jesus and all the other prisoners of the past, all of whom surely were begging for their lives and trying to be spared. Jesus so he just, just stands there. And second, Pilate observes the contrast between Jesus and this angry mob of Jews. Uh, their hearts are filled with hate and envy as they snarl their faces at Jesus. But, but Jesus, he just stands there with this majestic peace and calm. Pilate has never seen someone like Jesus before. He's no believer, but he is taken aback. At this point, according to Luke, the parallel, Luke 23, 5, it says the Jews, they just continued more accusations against Jesus. And one person said, quote, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. End quote. When Pilate heard that statement, he, he perked up. This whole thing was becoming way more than Pilate wanted to deal with. So when he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he thought maybe he has a way out. So according to Luke 23:6, when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. This brings us to number three, Jesus before Herod. Now we get to Jesus before Herod, Jesus before the Jews, then Jesus before Pilate, and now, next, Jesus before Herod. This doesn't come from Mark. This is some bonus material I'm throwing in so you get a rounded out picture of what was happening to Christ that morning. This marks part two to the Roman phase of his trial. It's still very early in the morning and upon Pilate's orders, the religious leaders and the temple guard, they marched Jesus from the praetorium, which is likely near the temple, to Herod's palace, where Herod is, and Jesus will now stand before Herod Antipas. We've seen this guy before, Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, ruler of Galilee and Perea. This is a guy you may remember from Mark 6 who executed John the Baptist, a death which in many ways foreshadowed that of Christ. Herod divorced his first wife, and then he, he stole the wife of his half-brother, this woman was also his niece, so he committed adultery and incest. John the Baptist preached and said, what you're doing is wrong. Herod usually left John alone, but through a ploy of his new wife, eventually had John beheaded. 
the thorn in Herod's side was gone. But not long after this, Herod starts hearing about this guy named Jesus going all throughout Galilee, performing signs and wonders. And you remember what Herod thinks about Jesus. He's fearful. And Mark 6 says he believes that Jesus is John, whom he beheaded, risen from the dead. People were, were trying to explain how is Jesus working these wonders. And a popular theory at that time in Galilee was that Jesus was John, risen from the dead. That's how he has all this power. And Herod believed that at first. And so at, at first he was scared of Jesus. Now over time, over the years, that, that went away. He no longer believed Jesus was John, risen from the dead. But Jesus still aroused Herod's curiosity. He wanted to see how, is this true? Do you have these powers? Can you, can you show me something? They've never met face to face until now. Now, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and they finally get to meet. So how does that go down? Well, I will continue reading for you, Luke 23. This is now verse 8. It says, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him, and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him, Nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. You'll notice Herod's strange, his fear for Jesus rather turned into into this strange curiosity. He wanted to see some signs and wonders. Hey, put on a show. Show me your power. He questions Jesus. Jesus, though, gives him nothing. Not even a single word. The total silent treatment. Herod is not worth anything. A single word. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the scribes, they continue to to yell and argue and accuse Jesus. Jesus just stands there silently once again. Herod's curiosity over Jesus was exhausted and turned into contempt. And so he delivered Jesus to be mocked and mistreated. Verse 11 says, And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe. And sent him back to Pilate. That's where the robe comes from. Verse 12 says, Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. Before before that, they had been enemies with each other. Isn't it amazing how the world unites in their hatred of the Lord? It's nothing like a common enemy to bring people together. And for the world, for the lost, that's God and his people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, united to kill Jesus and now Herod and Rome or Herod and Pilate find a friendship this mutual enemy as well still happens today but it should be noted Herod found no guilt in Jesus that's why he sent him back to Pilate Jesus wasn't guilty of anything as we know and as Pilate observed later the Jews really handed him over because of envy well as Jesus returns to Pilate We get to part three of his Roman trial, the very end, which leads to his sentence of death. But that we will pick up in Mark next week. I wanted to save some time, though, a little bit of time at the end, reflecting on these first five verses, just the setup of this Roman trial. I want to save some time, though, to reflect on one thing, and that is this majestic silence of Jesus that we've witnessed. That's what really stands out in these opening verses in Mark 15. Before Caiaphas, before Pilate, before Herod, 
before the Sanhedrin, Jesus displays this profound silence. Not what we would expect at first. And you know, why, why is this? Well, what do we make of this? Is this trying to teach us something? Are we supposed to learn something? Why was he so silent during this whole trial? There's several reasons. For one, all the baseless accusations hurled at him didn't justify a response. These people all declared Jesus innocent one way or another, so why justify their false accusations with a response? His silence was a protest. That was in many ways louder than words. But in addition, though, through his silence, Jesus was actually revealing himself. They denied him as the Christ, but through his silence, he actually was bearing witness to his identity as the Christ. That's because God's Messiah, the suffering servant, you might remember, was prophesied to suffer in silence. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says of the suffering servant Christ, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. They don't have eyes to see it, but literally Everything that was happening to Jesus, everything he said, what he didn't say, everything he did, it's all loaded with meaning and significance. Jesus, he was actually proving himself to be the Messiah. At the very same time, they were killing him for claiming to be the Messiah. Well, he didn't turn back, though. This was, this was the plan to take our place, to pay our penalty, to purchase our redemption. So Jesus suffered in silence to give a protest. Jesus suffered in silence to give a a fulfillment. And thirdly, Jesus suffered in silence to give an example. To give an example. I want to be clear that the primary accomplishment of the death of Christ was not to just show the world what love looks like. That's not the main goal. The, The primary accomplishment was to literally pay the penalty for our sins, to purchase our forgiveness. He died the death we deserved that we might have the life that he lived. That's the nature of the atonement. And first and foremost, you are called to believe in him, the power of his death and resurrection. He offers you life and forgiveness and salvation, bids you to come. So so come. That is the primary impact of his death. And we will see that unfold all throughout Mark 15. We want to make that very clear. But there is, there is a secondary function to the atonement, and that is to leave an example. It's not the main reason he died, I have to be clear, but it is still a factor in his death. Remember, Mark's gospel was written to believers in ancient Rome, and they were suffering greatly for their faith in Jesus. The days were dawning when Christians would be burnt at the stake and cast to wild animals simply because they followed Jesus. So they especially, they needed to behold how their Lord and their Savior, he suffered too. He suffered for them. He suffered unjustly at the hands of wicked men. But he endured. And see, look at him. Look, look how he did it. Look how he handled himself. All the while, he did what was right. He didn't sink to their level. All the while, he entrusted himself to God, knowing that God would set all things right in the end. And that's exactly what we are called to do in in a hostile world where we might suffer as well. It's a big pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow for many. 
That's why we too need to see our Savior walk this path first. And that's what comes out in our passage this morning. Everyone will suffer in life. Do you agree? Everyone will suffer in life. But Jesus gives us an example of how to suffer for the sake of righteousness in a way that finds favor with God. Far better to do that than to suffer for the sake of unrighteousness. This is how we are to conduct ourselves in a hostile world. I just want to take, you know, our, our few remaining minutes, just take this truth and run with it. So humor me and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. You can leave Mark behind and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. You may have noticed I've been referencing 1 Peter a lot lately. That's on purpose. Keep in mind, Mark's gospel has Peter behind it. Peter's there in Rome with Mark. He is the source material for Mark's gospel. Also, several years ago, I preached here through First and Second Peter, and that's why we chose Mark to go through. So it's only fitting for us to return to First Peter from time to time. We, we, we hear the same lessons, often reiterated, but from Peter's perspective. It gives us just a special touch. We did some of that last week. Do some more right now. I want to I cross-reference a few passages that drive home this lesson on how to suffer righteously, like Jesus did. First Peter was likewise written to Christians who were suffering for their faith. Peter has a lot to say about that theme as well. Now, we need to hear these words, especially now. How do you live in a world that hates Christ and his followers? What should we do? How do we react when the world makes us suffer? It makes our lives miserable. How should we conduct ourselves? Well, from the example of Jesus that we saw and now from the words of Peter, let me give you quick three ways to live in a hostile world. I'm going to boil it down here. Three ways to live in a hostile world, all exemplified by Jesus. Peter gives us the same thing. Number one, simple. Make sure you suffer for doing what is right. If you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for doing what is right. Everyone's going to suffer. At least let it be for righteousness, not sin and wickedness. Peter says that several times. Chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in that name. The wicked, they're going to suffer too, but more often as a consequence of their own sin and wickedness. But for us, well, what good is that for us? We are called to Christ. That doesn't mean we will escape suffering in this life, but at least it is better for us to suffer for doing what is right in God's eyes than what is wrong. If you're in 1 Peter 2, look at verse 18. Look, how, look what he says here. 2.18, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and Gentile, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. For if the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. And Jesus perfectly modeled this. What use is it to suffer For the sake of sin, 
There's no reward for that. It doesn't find God's favor. You just, you're going to get what you deserve. But when you're made to suffer just for the sake of your association with Christ, God is pleased. Because that shows that you value Christ more than your life. That, that's a living faith, and that faith pleases God. God is pleased when you count Christ worthy to suffer for. And hey, if you're going to suffer, far better to suffer for what is right than what is wrong. That's number one. Number two, make sure you patiently endure your suffering. While you suffer, whatever it is, well, make sure you patiently endure your suffering, like I just said in verse 20. We all must suffer, but how do you, how do you respond to these trials, these heavy trials in your life. How do some people respond? Some people fight back. They lash out. That inevitably leads to sin. Maybe with your tongue, maybe with your hands, whatever. And then you're, you're no longer innocent. You're no longer suffering for righteousness' sake. But look, Jesus, he didn't fight back. He never verbally lashed out. He didn't sin. He put Peter's sword away. And rather, he just patiently endured as we are called to do. He he took it. He just took it. He bore up, it says, he bore up under sorrows, even though he was suffering unjustly. That's a hard thing to do. It wasn't fair. What happened to him wasn't fair. It wasn't right. But listen, simple lesson, two wrongs don't make a right. We, in following Christ, were not given the option of fighting fire with fire, of fighting sin with sin. We don't get to do that. That's not the way of the Lord. And in this regard, Jesus left us a specific example. We're talking about the example. He specifically modeled this for us. And you know how I know that. Look at the next verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 21. What does it say? It says, For you have been called for this purpose. For what purpose? To patiently endure your suffering. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Isn't that what we saw in Jesus this morning? Just that verse exactly. This doesn't mean we don't seek justice within our means. Of course we do. Of course we seek justice within our means, non-sinfully. Do everything you can non-sinfully. But like Christ, at the end of the day, we can't resort to sin just to find justice for ourselves. It is better for us to suffer an injustice silently than to sin, than to stoop to the level of our enemies. That's what Jesus did. This is his way and this, he calls us this way as well. I know what you feel right now. You feel that that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. I mean, how will we get justice then? Are we just like doormats that are just going to walk all over us? What do do we do? Who will deliver us then? If we aren't to do this, who will? And lastly, this leads to a a third way to live in a hostile world, world. Number three, like Jesus, make sure you entrust yourself to God, the righteous judge. That's the real answer. Make sure you entrust yourself to God, the righteous judge. You're going to suffer, so suffer for doing what is right. All the while, patiently endure your suffering. The only way you can do that, though, is by make sure you entrust yourself to God, the righteous judge. Jesus knew 
All that was happening to him, it wasn't just, it wasn't right, it wasn't good. But he trusted God, the judge, to make it right. Isn't that God's job? That's his job. That's what he will do. We've already seen how through Christ, God took the greatest evil and used it for the greatest good. And he still does that with our sufferings. In the end, God will right all wrongs and he will judge all evil. And you have to leave vengeance to God. He will repay. The word for entrusting, you see that word in verse 23, the word for entrusting, that's a special word. Jesus entrusted himself to God. That word means to hand over. Now get this, that same word was first used of the Jews and of Pilate and of Judas. Here's how it went. Judas first handed over Jesus to the Jews. Same word. Then the Jews handed over Jesus to Pilate. Same word. Then Pilate handed over Jesus to the cross. And we'll see in the gospel, same word is used. Jesus, throughout this whole time, he's being tossed and turned, thrown against his will, so to speak, sent to this cross, handed over. But all the while, what did Jesus do? All the while, he handed over himself to God. Same word used. He entrusted his life to God and his providential care and his righteous judgments. Jesus knew, God, this isn't right, but God will make this right in his timing, in his end. I'm just going to trust that and endure. And that is our call as well. We can't control how the world treats us. They might hand us over. They might hand us over to some ill, some suffering. But we, all the while, always must hand ourselves over to God. Trusting him to direct our lives. Even, that, even if that involves suffering, knowing he will judge righteously. He will set things right in the end. 1 Peter 4, hey, just flip the page, we're almost done. But 1 Peter 4, look at verse 4. He says in verse 4, In all this, speaking of unbelievers, he says, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. That they, they slander you because you're not like them. But verse 5, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God will work that out. Verse 17, chapter 4, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust, same word, their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. Uh, real quick what he's saying. It's far better for us as believers, we'll be judged, but all we get is the purifying discipline of a father who loves us. That's all the judgment we get because Christ saved us from judgment. So his point is it's far better to suffer that the purifying discipline of a loving father than to suffer hell. All will suffer, but it's better to suffer in this life for the sake of righteousness than to suffer in the next life for the sake of unrighteousness. Jesus died to save us from that penalty. And those who are willing to bear his reproach will share his glory. So I'll finish with a verse from last week. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, 
the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I hope this connects some dots for you concerning some key themes we've been finding in Mark over the weeks leading up to today. Everything that's been happening to Jesus, you have to understand, to one degree or another, that's what will happen to us. That's part of the point. That's what we get in following him. Remember that, the the absolute call, you want to be my disciple? Well, then deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's, this is what he meant. This is what that means. Pick up your cross. This isn't cheap discipleship. This isn't your best life now. This isn't for fakers. There's only one way to do this. And that's if you have come to behold and value Christ, him as worth more than everything else in the universe, including your life. Only then will you be happy to lose your life to gain him. Only then will you embrace suffering for his sake. But only then will you escape eternal suffering and gain his eternal life. So I urge you as we behold Christ again, make sure you see him for who he is. Make sure you count the cost. Make sure you see the value for who he is and what he's done for you. He's worth everything. And in him you, you gain everything. But first, you have to be willing to lose everything. So are you willing? And if so, then just come to Christ the King. Take up his cross, and God will ensure that one day you will take up his crown as well. All for the glory of his name. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we again bow Another week, another time through your word, seeing Christ on that road to Calvary. And these are, these are heavy, heavy times. It's unavoidable, this, these chapters of the cross. It's, it's a pretty heavy stuff, but nonetheless, Lord, what a reminder of our Savior. What a reminder of your love, what Jesus did for us. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He, he took it. He suffered even silently, bearing all these false accusations, such injustice and evil done against him. But he trusted you more. He knew you are the the good father who holds the world in his hands. You judge righteously. You will make it right in the end. That must be our hope. We can't take this into our hands. This is in your hands. But that's a safe place to be. So, Lord, we take delight in the safety of your will and your, your sovereignty May we follow Christ, his example now and how we are to live, just resting in him. For in him we've been delivered from that ultimate penalty and we'll know just a a small taste of suffering in this life. But we can attest the glory to be revealed to us is far surpassing anything we suffer in this life. So let us endure. Help us endure. Give us the strength and the grace to endure and perfect us when that day comes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.